we continue with the fifth objection raised under the question, what do we know about the truthfulness of God from the Bible? It has been objected that if the nature of depravity is so compelling that all men born since Adam must of necessity follow this depravity, then why does the Bible continually charge everyone with the guilt of his own sin, just as though he entered into it of his own free volition? Or, to state the matter in another way, it has been commonly expressed that we are not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. If this be so, how shall our guilt be established? We have observed that the general presentation of the Bible was that man was guilty for his own sin, which was of a voluntary nature. Man was not a subject of pity, but of guilt. That so great is man's guilt, that the humbled and pardoned saints of God, in full view of the reality of God's righteous judgment upon sinners, shall exclaim, Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. We noted the Bible presentation, that we are all born into this world with a depraved constitution, in that weakness and decay is present in our physical bodies, which ends in death. Also, that our moral faculties are affected. The intelligence is not as sharp as it would be. The emotions are too sensitive toward self-gratification. The will is deficient in sternness and authority. The sufferings and burdens of life pronounced upon Adam and Eve are also our portion. But the Bible, notwithstanding these things, affirms our own great guilt and responsibility for our sin. But we remark in the third place that the depravity of constitution that we have received from our parents was comparatively very small when we consider the depravity of heart that we have added to ourselves by our own voluntary sinful actions. Very few seem to evaluate the consequences of their own sinful lives upon themselves. Paul affirmed that there was an unalterable law of personality, as in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. So we are affected by what we do, and all of our sins leave an indelible trace upon our personalities, which add to our movement of depravity. James also talked about the conceiving force of lust in his first chapter, verses 13 to 15. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So here we have clearly implied that sinful indulgence leaves a marked increase in the clamor for further gratification within our very beings. And so we are what we have been through, 
and have developed our bondage to sin to the point where we cry out with Paul when the truth of God has shed its light upon our pathway and convinced us that we ought to forsake our sins. There he spoke, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Romans 7, 24. We come to the point where we are by nature or character the children of wrath, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3 or may expect the righteous wrath of God because we are the children of disobedience. As we read in Colossians 3, 5, these are two parallel passages which assert the same coming of the wrath of God upon disobedience and sin. A drunkard, for example, has brought himself to his amazing bondage by tasting drink out of a mere curiosity. He did not begin with the tremendous bondage that he now experiences, but he has developed his own bondage by persistent indulgence in spite of all the moral light that has been brought upon his pathway. And so the bondage of sin in everyone, before being delivered by the wonderful power of the gospel, is very great indeed. But we owe ninety-some percent to our own indulgence under the moral light visited upon us from various sources. So depravity and temptation are not sinful in themselves, but lead to sin. We can only charge our multiplied bondage to our own persistence in sin, and thereby we are responsible and can only assert our own guilt. But in the fourth place we may remark that the Bible everywhere affirms that the basis of our condemnation is not a constitutional nature, but is a wrong course of action, or a wrong conduct of our lives, a deficiency in proper objectives, a denial of our proper intelligent obligations toward God and toward man. In Deuteronomy 24 and verse 16, for example, we have the principles of earthly government set forth that God instituted, and they would certainly prevail also in God's moral government, would they not? The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, Moses wrote. Neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. And so we have the principles of our own government. And in Second Chronicles chapter 6, verses 36 to 39, we have in Solomon's prayer of dedication of the temple a dealing with the matter of sin as an action which would call forth the righteous judgment of God. If they sin against thee, for there is no man which sinneth not, and thou be angry with them, and deliver them over before their enemies, and they carry them away captives unto a land far off or near, yet if they bethink themselves in the land whither they are carried captive, and turn and pray unto thee in the land of their captivity, saying, We have sinned, we have done amiss, and have dealt wickedly. If they return to thee with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity, whither they have been carried them captive, and pray toward their land which thou gavest unto their fathers, 
and toward the city which thou hast chosen, and toward the house which I have built for thy name. Then hear thou from heavens, even from thy dwelling place, their prayers and their supplications, and maintain their cause, and forgive thy people which have sinned against thee. This is a tremendous admonition to anyone seeking the face of God in the pardon of sin. And here we have sin set forth as an action which may be entered upon and which may be terminated by repentance. In the Psalms we have a number of expressions. For example, the seventh Psalm and verse 11 where God's righteous anger is uh, spoken forth upon those conducting themselves wickedly. And we must remember that all selfishness is wickedness. The breaking of the first commandment is a refusal to allow God to have the supreme place in the heart and life, and is indeed the very essence of sin. God judgeth the righteous, we read in Psalm 7:11, and God is angry with the wicked every day. God is not angry with us for some nature that we possess, but God is angry with us because of the nature of our lives or the manner of our conduct. In the 14th chapter of the Psalms, verse 3, they are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Here sin is set forth as an action. And then in Isaiah 53, and verse 6, we see that sin is a turning to our own way or to a pathway of selfishness. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So sin is an action. It's a voluntary action. It's an intelligent action. It's a preference for our own selfish ways notwithstanding the wonderful moral light that God has shed upon our lives from various sources. In the 31st chapter of Jeremiah, verses 27 to 30, the prophet spoke for God that perfect righteousness would be established and that everyone would be judged for his own sins only. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that like as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down and to throw down and to destroy and to afflict, so will I watch over them to build and to plant, saith the Lord. In those days they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten a sour grape and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man that eateth the sour grape, his teeth shall be set on edge. So every individual shall be charged with the solemn responsibility of his own iniquity. In the 18th chapter of Ezekiel, we have a very valid expression of this matter. Verses 1 to 4, first, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, What mean ye that ye use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, saith the Lord God, ye shall not have occasion any more to use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine, as the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. 
the soul that sinneth, it shall die. So here is a plain affirmation of guilt upon the individual for his own sin. And then in verse 20, this tremendous verse, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. So here it is positively affirmed that God does not impute the sins of one unto another. And if the Bible anywhere clearly affirmed that the sin of Adam was imputed literally to all of us as his descendants, then we would have a contradiction in the Bible, because here it is plainly affirmed that God will not impute the iniquity of the Father to the Son, but that God unalterably affirms that the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him, and the soul that sinneth it shall die. But we must continue this matter in our next visit. May we pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we have considered from thy word thy wonderful righteousness in dealing with us, we thank thee that thou hast had mercy upon us, in sending a Savior to die for the sins of the whole world. And we're thankful that any who will truly acknowledge their guilt and turn from their sin and have an expression of faith toward the death of Christ may be forgiven on thine own promises and be reconciled to thee. May many do so in Jesus' name. Amen.